cross for me endured such that she did. And she shared a story that came for a day. It was very impactful. And she's going to uh, leave us. She came back for a reboot. She can share that. Um, but she's going to leave us next week. Everyone say, bah humbug. Um, but she's going to go back to her husband and her children. Um, and we so honor Hope House for making a place where someone can come when life just gets a little overwhelming. And we want to recognize this is Jesus's fruit. Pastor David and Connie's and the Women of Hope and all the ministries that then serve their purpose that Christy is alive today with scars that bring forth healing. But we love you, Christy. Can we pray right now? Father, we welcome your Holy Spirit that's already here. We thank you for just being with Christy today and just speaking through her and encouraging her and then speaking through us as we come back in about five minutes. And when she's done, five minutes to kind of finish it up. But Holy Spirit, we just thank you for speaking through her to us today. Open our ears and our hearts. Let us be open to hear the victories, the sorrows. Unless we sorrow with people, we cannot rejoice. And help us to understand the hurting around us. They're walking all around us every day. They are the true walking dead, Lord Jesus, that need us to reach out to them. We welcome you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And everyone said Amen. So Christy's going to make her way. We've not given her five minutes. We've given ourselves five minutes. So she's coming to share her story. Would you welcome Christy Eccles as she comes? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Christy. I am a believer in our Lord Christ, and I am a grateful alcoholic. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about my uh, background. I was born to two teenage parents. Um, they divorced before I was a year old, so I never got to see them together. I spent the first eight years of my life um, with joint custody between my father's parents and my mother. Um, didn't get to see much of my father. He stayed out of the house, and he was pursuing other interests. He did marry when, remarry when I was five years old and I didn't spend much time with his new family. Um, it was difficult going back and forth between my mother's home and my grandparents' home. I never really felt this good sense of security. And then my grandfather and my grandmother divorced, so what I knew of families is that they didn't stay together. Um, I was very close with my grandfather, so it hurt when he was no longer in the home. And he was my first real foundation um, of learning about Jesus. And he used to take me on his business trips down to his um, beach house. And um, we would walk on the beach together, and he would talk to me about Jesus. And those are some of the best memories of my childhood, actually, and um, where I first learned about Christ. And um, anyway, um, going back and forth between my grandparents and or my grandmothers and my mother, um, my mother had a lot of mental health issues, and she, we pretty much lived in poverty. We moved around a lot, and um, both of my grandmothers were alcoholics, active alcoholics, and I can remember being very afraid to be around the both of them when they drank. It was very, um, their behavior was very unpredictable, and of course, as a little girl, I didn't imagine that I would ever become one of them, and um I spent a lot of time isolating. I, um, I poured a lot of my time into books. I always had my nose in a book, and I used to um, really love to pretend that I was the characters that I read about. I would um, just really, you know, just 
dive into those books and um, I had dreams of becoming a writer one day and I used to love to write poetry and short stories and um, I had really active imaginations about what I would become when I got older and I loved um, I loved nature and I loved animals and I thought maybe one day I would become a veterinarian and I really loved music I played music throughout middle school and high school and I thought of maybe playing in a symphony orchestra and I just had all these all these ideas of things that I wanted to be when I got older and um, never was it something that I wanted to be you know an alcoholic because none of us addicts or alcoholics wake up one day and say hey I think I want to ruin my life with alcoholism and drugs so um anyway flash forward into middle and high school I was still very much an isolator I had a very small group of friends and because of my mother's mental health issues I tried to stay away from home as much as possible I pretty much moved in with my friends their parents always seemed to like me and um, didn't seem to mind me living with them they'd let me use their cars they would uh, they seemed to trust me more than their own children driving them around <laughs> for some reason and I guess because I didn't I didn't drink at that time I didn't use drugs in fact it wasn't until about two years or two weeks actually before my 18th birthday that I actually drank for the first time and got arrested for the first time for underage drinking that probably should have been indicative of a later problem however um, I straightened up after that and I really really um, wanted to go to college I had actually quit school I had a lot of depression and um, emotional issues myself and a lot of anger issues um, that I didn't quite understand but um, I had quit school but then I realized my ticket to go to college I really wanted um, I didn't want a life of poverty I wanted to do more for myself I became very motivated and so I went back to night school I got my credits to graduate and um, I just decided I was going to move to be near my family and I was going to um, enroll in college courses and I did and the first part of my 20s were really good um, I uh, you know I'd learned two things early on in my childhood and one was that I had to wear masks I had to be what I thought other people wanted me to be um, and I also learned that in order to be accepted I had to be perfect so I had a real air of perfectionism because I never felt like I was really accepted particularly by my father I never really felt good enough and um, I really carried those things into my adulthood so when I started into college it wasn't just enough for me to graduate I was determined I was going to graduate with honors and um, I was just really ready to take on the world and um, the thing was is on the inside that's not so much how I felt I still was carrying a lot of baggage from my childhood a lot of depression a lot of anxiety but I was determined that I wasn't going to show that to the outside world so um, I'm, I met who I was going to marry you know and in, in college he was in college we married um, things were seemingly going well we both graduated we bought our first home had nice cars um, drinking was not an issue we didn't keep alcohol in the home we drank socially you know that sort of thing and then graduated I started my career I was working as a social worker for the state of Georgia um, the only thing that wasn't happening is we didn't have children and um, we had tried we had wanted children but it didn't happen 
And eight years into our marriage, I basically found out my husband was living a whole separate life. Um, he had met people on the Internet, began having a series of affairs that I found out about later on. My marriage quickly ended abruptly. Um, my whole life, pretty much as I knew it, just completely turned upside down. Um, I, I just uh, I decided after that I was going to make a fresh start. I was going to move to downtown Atlanta. I was going to start a fresh new career, get myself an apartment, new friends, just everything. I was going to start a, just a fresh new start. The problem was, is you know, no matter where I went, there I was. And um, I still had all of this emotional stuff from, from years and years that I had never really dealt with. And, um, and then there was this horrible divorce as well that um, I just really didn't know how to face. And everything had happened so fast. So I was in my early 30s, and then that's when the drinking became problematic. I started using it at first as just a crutch, you know. Um, the depression and anxiety become, became really horrible. I couldn't sleep. And so at first it just began as having some drinks at night to be able to go to sleep. And then before I knew it, I was drinking earlier in the day. You know, at this point I had my apartment. I was still doing my, you know, my social work. And then I decided that's it. I, I couldn't. What used to be a manageable job at that point just became completely unmanageable. And so um, I decided, you know, I'm going to start putting resumes out. You know, shouldn't be any problem for me to get a new job downtown. I've got a degree. I've got job skills, all of that. Well, that was about the same time the economy started taking a plummet. So I was putting resumes out. Nothing was happening. I was getting discouraged. The more discouraged I got, the more I was drinking. Um, so I decided, well, you know, there's all these fine dining restaurants around. I'm going to go back into the service industry, which is what I had done while I was um, in school. And anybody who's worked in the service industry knows what goes on in those places. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of alcohol. People get off work. They start drinking. Well, that's what I started doing. But then I started isolating. I started noticing more and more that I was just staying in my apartment. I was getting off work, going to my apartment, drinking. And um, I'm a private person, so I didn't want people to know how much I drank and how often. And I began drinking every day. And I began drinking earlier in the day. Flash forward months in, um, I was drinking every day. I was waking up in the morning, I was drinking. I was, um, I had my car still at the time. Up until that point, I never knew what it was like to black out. I never had had that experience. That quickly changed. Um, I had savings. I had had a savings from where I had resigned my position with the state, and um, I quickly started going through those savings. Um, the job that I had at the restaurant, I got let go from because I was drinking on the job. So I got another job at a different restaurant. I was let go from that job for drinking on the job. So then I started taking jobs doing um, banquets. Um, like short-term banquets when they would have events going on downtown at the Dome or at um, the World Congress Center. Uh, they would have events going on at um, like the Georgia Aquarium and things like that. And I would sign up for those events because it would be short-term. It would maybe last a week or two weeks, and then I would have sometimes a week 
or two weeks off. I would make a sum of money, and then I could take that time off. And I would spend that entire time sitting in my apartment after I would go stock up on enough alcohol to get me through that time. And I would basically not leave my apartment and drink that whole time. And during that time, I was just sinking into a hole, into a further hole. And it wasn't about having fun, y'all. The fun of drinking had stopped long before that. It was about a means to cope with these negative emotions that I was having that I was finding more and more every day just becoming increasingly harder to deal with. And um, at that time, I was thinking, you know, if things would just change, if things would start looking up, if the right job would come through, if this, if that, then my drinking problem would start taking care of itself. But in reality, if my drinking would have stopped, other things would have started happening. And I know that now, but, um, you know, my spirituality at that point was just, I was... I was just sinking into a lower place and a lower place. Well, I ran completely out of my savings. Um, During this time, I also lost um, a couple of more of my job assignments because it was, uh, by this point, I was becoming physically addicted to the alcohol. Um, It got to where, you know, when I woke up, and I would even try, I would tell myself some days, I would get up and I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to drink today. By 10 o'clock in the morning, I would be shaking so bad, I would start feeling nauseated. And um, and then, uh, so there were the physical aspects, and then the mental, that's what would be so, that's what would start breaking me down, along with the physical. And I would have to go in my apartment, right across the street in the shopping center was, of course, a grocery store. And in that same shopping center was a liquor store. And so sometimes I would say, okay, I'm not going to drink liquor today. I'm just going to go and get wine. That would be better. And I would go and get wine, you know, just to get the physical under control. And the physical would get under control, and I'd think, okay, I'm okay now. But it wouldn't quite take away how I was feeling mentally. And so I'd end up walking back across the street. You see, and that's how I would rationalize it. Well, I'm not driving anywhere. But then... Before the day would be out, I would be in one of those blackouts, you see. And from what I know of blackouts, it's not that you lose a memory. Physiologically, what goes on is that your brain does not even make a memory. It's a very odd thing that you can be up and walking around and talking and doing things, and your brain is not making a memory, and you, so you... It's not that you're not remembering something. You don't know what you've done. And there were, um, there were mornings that I would come to, and I know the last thing that I did remember was that I had been out somewhere and not knowing where or what had happened and the terror that I would feel as I was looking around for my purse and my keys and knowing that I had been out somewhere and going outside and trying to check and make sure my car was out there and and inspecting it to see if there were dents or scratches and just 
my God, did I hit something? Did I possibly hit someone? Where have I been? And afraid for anyone to see me, wondering if anyone knew my secret, you know, and just the just the remorse, the guilt, the just overwhelming guilt. And, and of course, the only thing I could do to, to alleviate those terrible feelings was to drink again, as insane and as, as insidious as that sounds. And, and there would begin the next cycle. There would begin that cycle all over again. So as I ran out of money, I did what any person addicted would do. And um, I started, you know, well, before that, I, I, when I um, started realizing what was going on and that I actually did not to be need to be driving my car, I let them repossess my car, which was actually, I felt, the best thing that could happen. So I would walk, you know, I would walk over to the store, to the liquor store, and I began stealing my alcohol. And um, so thus began, um, and, and because of the blackouts, began a series of arrests. Um, for public intoxication, disorderly conduct. Um, now, meanwhile, I had not had an arrest before this from the time I was 17, that first arrest from public intoxication, or um, I'm sorry, underage drinking. All through my 20s, I had not had any arrests. I had been on the straight and narrow, and then here I am in my early 30s, and it was like I could not stay off the radar, and that was because I could not stop drinking. And um, I was getting arrested for, you know, shoplifting, um, public intoxication, disorderly conduct. I would even go back into stores that I was not supposed to go back into and be arrested for, um, you know, for uh, criminal trespassing. All misdemeanor charges, I somehow made it out, um, out of all these arrests without ever getting felonies. But, um, I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't stopping because I couldn't stop drinking and just... There was one time that I was um, in jail, and they had me on suicide watch. And I can remember laying on a cement floor. I'm in a paper suit, and they wouldn't even give me a mat. And there was a lady laying on the floor next to me, and she just kept screaming, screaming. And I can just remember laying there crying and thinking, God, this is what my life has come to. I can't believe this is what my life has come to. And still I got out and kept drinking because I just didn't know what else to do. I felt, you know, jail is bad enough. J there's nothing fun about jail, but it was the way that I felt on the inside. Like my soul was broken. And, <laughs> and so then, you know, because I didn't have a car, I was taking public transit. You know, I was, just, I was downtown, so it was just easy to take the bus everywhere and take the train everywhere and... I never left home without having something to drink in my bag. I always had a container of wine or a, at least a pint of, of something in my bag. And um, I would drink on the train. And uh, there were a lot of times that I passed out on the buses or on the trains. And I would get to the end of, you know, the line or the last stop on the bus. And I would have to be woken up by one of the MARTA officials and told, like, you've reached the end of the line. You've missed your stop. And um, sometimes I would be woken up and I was belligerent. I wouldn't remember being belligerent. And um, sometimes it was a MARTA police person waking me up. And depending on what mode they found me in, sometimes I would be taken to jail. 
or sometimes they were nice enough to help me get back on the train and get to my stop. But there were some times that the trains had quit running because it was the early hours of the morning, and I would end up having to find a bench to pass out on until the train started running again the following morning. And um, there were times that I passed out in obscure places and would come to, like, in the grass somewhere. I wouldn't even know where I was, how I got there. You know, and when I think back of the places that I would end up sometimes and have no recollection of how I got there. And, you know, and there were times that um, there were, you know, a lot of officers are really good people. And there were some that really helped me. They helped me get home and um, were kind to me. And then there were a couple of officers that were not such good people. And they tried to take advantage of me because I was incapacitated. And somehow I was able to cry and beg my way out of them going any further or doing things to me they shouldn't have done. And there were other people out there, men, that tried to take advantage. And somehow, again, I was able to cry and beg my way out of them hurting me. And somehow I made it out of those situations without um, ever being fully violated or robbed or beaten or anything like that. And looking back, I realized that there was always some someone there or something there to to get me through, you know. And... One night, I had even made it home, and um, I came to the following morning, and there was a note in my purse, and all it said was, I hope you're okay. I helped you get home last night. So I know that there was just always something looking out for me. And, you know, there were times I didn't even want to see the sun come up. I would just, I would just lay there and pull the covers up over me and cry and... I was just, I mean, to say I was hopeless is just an understatement. I don't even have the words for it. And I would I would look in the mirror and I would just hate myself. I wanted to bust it into a million shards rather than look at myself. And I didn't know a way out. I, I mean, I drank to live and I lived to drink. And I didn't even have the courage to kill myself. So I was basically slowly killing myself. My family didn't know what to do with me. They had all pulled away from me. My mom would talk to me on the phone, but she didn't know what to do with me. My closest friends didn't know what to do with me. I had a few neighbors that would check on me after they hadn't seen me for a few days. They'd come over and knock on the door, and they'd try to bring me food <laughs> and stuff, you know. And um, I stayed injured a lot because I guess I fell a lot, and I would have bruises and scrapes and busted lips and things like that. You know, my body hurt a lot because of just you know, falling down my steps and just crazy, crazy things like that. And um, so then I, I ultimately lost my apartment and um, I started going to like halfway, kind of halfway houses things, basically apartments with like that they had set up, recovery apartments as they called them downtown with like, several apartments and they'd move six people into an apartment but then the very next day you had to be on a marta bus going and looking for jobs um you know and they sent you to some aa meetings and that kind of thing so needless to say that didn't work for me because i was basically doing the same thing that i was doing and my the only difference was i didn't have my own apartment so that didn't work and um you know, the hopelessness was still there, the despondency, just 
and I did I just didn't know what to do I didn't know what to do anymore and um I had been through several detox units at this this point um to be honest with you in that year I've tried to count and I, I really can't tell you how many times I was arrested and how many detox clinics that I went through let's just say that it was more than a handful for each event and um so anyway, um, my father happened to have a golfing buddy who um, happened to be Miss Connie's brother. So that's how I heard about the Hope House. And um, my father asked me to look into it, and I contacted Miss Connie. I didn't know anything about the Hope House. I found out it was an 18-month program. And at that point, I was like, well, God, what do I have to lose, you know? I've lost everything. I don't have a home. I don't have a car. I don't, I've been, you know, I was trying to do an, um, an intensive outpatient program at that time in Georgia. And, um, you know, I, I knew I wanted some kind of help. I knew that I desperately needed some kind of help. But I just, it, it wasn't working. What I'd been doing just had not been working. And so um, I did contact Miss Connie, and I was like, you know what, I'll do it. I'll move up to Ella J, and I'll give this thing a try. And so my grandfather, my sweet little granddaddy, he took me up there that cold January morning, and I was still reeling from the alcohol, you know. And um, they took me in. I didn't have a penny to give them. And uh, lowest point in my life. And they started working with me and pouring into me. And they started showing me the love of God. And they planted seeds, you see. And that's what sometimes it's about. And, and sometimes it takes a long time for seeds to start growing. And uh, they showed me about unconditional love. And I started finding out, like, I don't have to wear masks. And it took me a long time, and I'm still learning about that one. And I'm still learning that, like, I don't have to be perfect. It's okay to be sick. It's okay to, it's okay to tell people, like, I need help. And, um, you know, I'm going to tell you, this thing has been a battle. My drinking took me to a very, very dark, I'll even say a demonic place. And, um... I've lost some battles along the way, you know. But my God has really been talking to me, really working with me. And you know how he speaks to me now is it's like my little girl. He calls me his little girl. That's what I feel like because he's telling me he's, he's healing these wounds in me. It's like he's speaking to the little girl inside of me that's had all these wounds that I've carried for such a long time. <sighs> And he's telling me, you know, this, I've lost some battles, but this war is not over. It is not over. And the best thing is, is that I'm not fighting it alone. He started a work in me. He is going to complete that work. And when he's victorious, not if, but when he's victorious, I will be an overcomer. You know? And he really revealed something to me yesterday. I just have to, you know, put this in there, and I'm going to start wrapping this up. But um, 
you know, I've, I've received such blessings when I came to the Hope House, and this time around, you know, them letting me come back, because, I mean, I have a, I have a wonderful husband right now, and I have two small babies, a three- and four-year-old, when I thought I'd never get to have a family, and, um, you know, I truly couldn't ask for a better husband. He has supported me so much, and these two babies are like, they're my miracle babies. And um, that's why I know God would not have loaned them to me if he didn't think that I could do this. But um, of the gifts that I've received, I realized yesterday that um, to be able to stand here today alive and sober, covered in the blood, and be able to share with you all this testimony is one of the biggest gifts that I could receive. And I am just really honored and humbled to be able to be here today and do this. And I really thank you all for being here and listening to me. There is an entity today that is very, very unhappy about what just happened. Very, very, very unhappy. Revelation 12 and 10 says that we overcome the enemy by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Agreeing with Christy, no one gets up tomorrow morning and says, I'm going to be an addict. I want to be an alcoholic. That's not how that, how that rolls. And Christy and I both, February 1st, I celebrated 36 years clean. And Easter Sunday... I'll celebrate 35 years full-time ministry, Easter Sunday. Like Chrissy, it's uncomfortable to share your testimony because you're not that person anymore. You're not that. When you begin to share your testimony, you realize that you're talking about somebody that's dead. That person is dead, and there's no glory in that, and there's no honor in that. But when we share what God has done for us, it immediately plows the soil of a heart that's broken. And immediately begins to knock on doors that are locked. And so there is an anointing and there is a miracle attached to her testimony. It was the enemy's will to take her out for to either overdose or die or be arrested and spend her life in prison. That was the plan of the enemy. But God said in Jeremiah, I have a good plan for your life. I have plans to bless you, not hurt you, and not harm you. And today, let this be a wake-up call that if the enemy has his will, he will destroy you. He'll destroy you. He'll take advantage of you. He'll abuse you. 
he'll use them. One day he'll get you to a place where he will abandon you. But God said, I choose that you have life and have life more precious and have life more abundant. What Christy shared today is simply scars. She's not that person anymore. She doesn't go to those places anymore. She doesn't do that anymore. And even in scars, I wonder sometimes if we ever really completely get healed because the scars of yesterday sometimes open doors for us to make mistakes tomorrow. Does that make sense? And I find that, and hopefully everything we share from this podium is structural and biblical, but I found in the Word of God that I don't know that the scars on the hands of Jesus, His feet and His hands and His forehead and His side and His back, I don't know that those scars Alden ever really completely heal because several days after the resurrection, he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, what you're doing, you're driving the, the nails back in my hands. And that's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants your life to hurt and wound Christ, to hurt and wound the church. That's what the enemy's plan is. But God said, old things are passed away. All things are become new. If any man be in Christ is a new creature. It doesn't say you're done. It doesn't say you're complete, but you're new. And like a little child, you start on that path, that new path, that, that way called holiness, that highway in the desert, that road in the wilderness that God allows you to walk, and not by yourself, but with His light, His direction, and surrounding you with such a great cloud of witnesses. And every day, the Lord reminds the Father of that promise. When you get to heaven, you realize that the only thing that you and I contributed to heaven, there is a contribution that you and I have made to heaven and that is the scars on Christ's hands and feet and side. That's man-made. The only man-made thing you'll find in heaven is scars. And what a testimony. A little child asked her dad, said, well, you know, Dad, if God is God, why didn't he do plastic surgery and remove the, well, why didn't he put, do plastic surgery and give Adam a belly button? Because he is reminded daily. The Father is reminded daily of the price that Christ paid for you, that you're bought with the price and you have been redeemed. And God wants you healthy and whole. And God wants your life to turn around. God wants you to be able to look at the past and realize He has brought me a mighty long way. He has brought me a mighty long way. Paul said, I'm not done but I forget the things of yesterday because today is a brand new day in Jesus Christ. You can never start over, but you can start again. You can start again, and you can say, today is the first day of the rest of my life. And from this moment forward, I choose 
Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I was sharing with Elio this morning, Lemuel Miller, lifelong friend, world karate champion, uh, came to this house and taught this church, and I don't know if you remember, taught this church that he said, if you will make the effort, God will bless the effort. God will overwhelm that effort with kindness and favor and blessing and miracles. He still does miracles. As every head is bowed, as every eye is closed, if you're here this morning and you've wandered away from the Lord and Christy begin to share her heart and all of a sudden you could see some parallel moments.